Hello, this is Jim Wallace, and you're listening to a special edition of The Soul of a Nation, a podcast about how our faith should shape our politics and not the other way around. You can find Soul of a Nation on iTunes, Google Play, and on sojo.net. For more news, resources, and reflections on the nation's moral and health crisis, visit sojo.net. Today, I am delighted to be speaking with Ben Cohen about his advocacy, his advocacy work to end qualified immunity for police officers. The subject of his new book, which you all need to read, entitled Above the Law, How Qualified Immunity Protects Violent Police. Let me say it again. Above the Law, How Qualified Immunity Protects Violent Police. Ben Cohen was born in Brooklyn in 1951 and brought up in Merrick, New York. In 1978, he and his longtime friend, in 1978, he and his longtime friend, Jerry Greenfield, started a homemade ice cream parlor in an old gas station in Burlington, Vermont. The ice cream was well received, you might say, and after a few years, Ben and Jerry started to distribute pints to grocery stores in New England, and eventually nationally and even internationally. Along the way, Ben held the positions of scooper, crep, I'm sorry, Ben held the positions of scooper, crep maker, truck driver, director of marketing, sales director, CEO, and chairman of what became a $300 million a year public corporation. In 2000, despite his efforts to keep the company independent, Ben and Jerry's was sold to Unilever. Ben and Jerry have received numerous awards and recognition, including the Corporate Giving Award from the Council on Economic Priorities, the U.S. Small Business of the Year Award from President Ronald Reagan, and several honorary doctorates. Along with Jerry, he authored the book, which you also should read, called Ben and Jerry's Double Dip, How to Run a Values-Led Business and Make Money Too. Ben has served on the boards of Social Venture Network, Hampshire College, Oxfam, Greenpeace, Business for Social Responsibility, and Heifer International. In addition, Ben also served as a national co-chair of the Bernie 2020 campaign. Currently, Ben divides his time between currently Ben divides his time. Ugh. Currently, Ben divides his time between Assange Defense Org, Drop the Mic 2020, and Working to End qualified immunity, and eating ice cream, which I would highly recommend from Ben and Jerry's. Ben Cohen, so is the co-founder of Ben and Jerry's and the co-chair of the National Campaign to End Qualified Immunity. Thank you for joining us. Ben, my brother, how's your spirit today? You know, Jim, uh, it's actually kind of mellow. And, you know, listening to that Sonora's voice of yours even mellows me out a little more. Uh, you know, I've been doing a lot of Zoom calls and this background, this virtual background of me on a tropical island kind of showed up <laughs> on my screen. And so I've kept it. So I've, you know, I've kind of been feeling a little like I'm on a tropical island. <laughs> Well, we are blessed, I use that word, to have you join us today. 
In your book, you tell horrific stories of police brutality, resulting in death and injury with the officers who committed these acts facing zero consequences, protected by what's called qualified immunity. You wrote that qualified immunity erodes the enforcement of constitutional rights, undermines the rule of law, and denies justice to those victimized by police, letting the cycle of racialized policing and police brutality repeat over and over again. That's a powerful quote, Ben, from the, the, the book. So explain more to our listeners, what exactly is qualified immunity? And do you think most people understand the magnitude of harm caused by this police brutality? Well, qualified immunity uh, is a legal doctrine. It's not a law. It was something that was created out of whole cloth by the Supreme Court. And the, the history of it is that, uh, you know, after the Cold War, there was a problem that uh, a lot of the police in Confederate states were members of the Ku Klux Klan. They were still members of the Ku Klux Klan, and they would abuse and brutalize black people. So Congress passed a law uh, that became known actually as the Ku Klux Klan Act that said that any citizen whose constitutional rights were violated by a state employee like a policeman could sue that policeman uh, in civil court for damages. And it worked pretty well. I mean, it, it stopped the problem uh, until the Supreme Court uh, came up with this legal doctrine starting in the 1960s, where they said that you cannot sue a police officer for abusing you and violating your constitutional rights unless you could point to an example of another police officer in the same jurisdiction under exactly the same circumstances who had violated someone else's constitutional rights, and they got convicted. And so the reality in practice is that there's never exactly the same situation. And in most cases where, you, where, where someone whose rights had been violated by the police tries to sue them, uh, the case is thrown out of court uh, on the grounds of qualified immunity. Mm -hmm. So this began right after the Civil War, you're saying to us the 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 law that allows uh citizens to sue cops began after the civil war that's correct way back when well that's very interesting now a number of our listeners are probably thinking right now uh why is ben cohen who is this ice cream maker and extraordinary ethical business person and lover of life and with a big smile on his face. What drew him to get so involved in an issue like this, explaining to us qualified immunity, uh, which was beginning the, this law allowing people to sue on, on behalf of their own safety and security after some war that now has been turned around. What is an, how does an ice cream maker <laughs> uh, and a social justice advocate, as you are both, drawn to this in particular? I think a lot of listeners are saying, is that Ben Cohen? Why is he talking about this? Tell us why 
You well, got your own of those. You know, just like millions and millions and millions of Americans, uh, Jerry and myself have been outraged at all these uh, examples, all these situations where police are murdering unarmed black people. And, you know, you see it happen once and then you say, well, that, you know, now that it's been exposed, they can't do that again. And then you see it happening again and again and again. And usually the police aren't even charged with a crime. And if they are, you know, like two years later, you hear that they got off with a slap on the wrist. And so, yeah, we, we were outraged and, uh, and we started understanding. Well, actually what happened was we saw a open letter to, to Congress that had been signed by 1,400 members of the Players Coalition, professional athletes, calling on Congress to overturn qualified immunity. The players, you read this letter from the players and that really spoke to you. Right. And we said, well, here's a way where we can help to, to stop this, this abuse, uh, this outrage. And we said, we're, you know, so we said, well, we'll get together, you know, a bunch of business leaders to, to sign a letter like that. And we got, you know, I think about 700 of them. Uh, and then, then we kind of realized that, you know, just sending uh, an open letter to Congress wasn't really going to do the trick. And, and we decided to staff up and uh, run a full-fledged campaign, a multifaceted campaign to overturn qualified immunity, to, you know, to, to let people know about what's going on and to, to work with groups around the country that uh, are trying to end qualified immunity. Uh, you know, qualified immunity uh, can be ended uh, via a state law uh, within a state, and it can also be overturned uh, through a federal legislation. And so, uh, you know, currently it's been overturned in Colorado. Uh, recently this year, New Mexico also overturned it. Uh, the city of New York uh, overturned it. Uh, Massachusetts and Connecticut, uh, have modified it. And, uh, right now, uh, you know, it's, it's California is working on it. And at the federal level, the, you know, the George Floyd justice and policing act includes overturning qualified immunity. It passed the house. And now that act is being negotiated in the, in the Senate. And the, the stumbling block is uh, the qualified immunity provision. Republicans don't want cops to be held accountable. So we're going to get to that bill in some de de detail, but I, there's, there's lessons here. So when you're outraged, you use that word outraged, by things that you see that occur, and then you see it from your quote, this happens over and over and over again. So when we're outraged by things that happen over and over and over again, what you did is you got your friends together, you got your colleagues together, people, you know, in your case, other 
business leaders to do something about it. So there's a lesson there about what to do with outrage, particularly when the things we're outraged about keep happening again and again. So when I read these stories in your very powerful book, as a person of faith, it seems to me like police who respond with such violence are really at a religious level literally denying the image of God, what we call Imago Dei, in all of us, all human beings, in the people they're supposed to serve and protect. So how has that injustice of qualified immunity been allowed to cover up violence for so long? Seems to me like it's just what covers it up again and again and again. Well, there's there's several aspects uh, to policing. You know, number one, uh, most police departments prioritize hiring military veterans. Uh, they get extra points on the entrance exam, etc. And and then we have this program where, in order to make more room for new weapons, the Pentagon gives their old, perfectly good weapons to police departments around the country. So you've got a situation where you've got police departments that have a disproportionately high number of former military officers using former military equipment. And in addition, uh, we, the taxpayers, are paying these police departments to hire uh consultants that come in, former military, that do these seminars with police called warrior training. And in that training, the police are encouraged to see the people they're policing as the enemy. And they're encouraged to be able to kill. And, you know, when you think about the training that people go through in the military. I mean, a big part of that training is to train people to kill without compunction, to, you know, to kill the enemy, uh, to deny, as you say, the God in that other person. And, you know, I mean, if you think about it, the absolute, probably the absolute worst training you'd want for a police officer is to have been indoctrinated in military type thinking and mentality. You use the word warriors here uh, in the movement for, for transforming our public safety. Uh, what I hear often is a contrast between this idea of warriors and guardians. Police are not meant to be warriors as you very eloquently described here but guardians instead. What's the difference in warriors and guardians? I, I think that's a very good point. Uh, guardians are protecting. Warriors tend to be killing. Uh, warriors are against some other entity. Guardians are protecting uh, an entity. And, it, you know, it's interesting that you use the word guardians. You know, uh, the Fraternal Order of Police never endorsed a presidential candidate except for Donald Trump. And uh, 
many black officers left the fraternal order of police and joined uh, and formed an organization called Guardians. Uh, You know, that kind of reflects exactly what you're saying. Mm -hmm. A phrase mentioned in your campaign is, quote, ending qualified immunity is not anti-cop, but pro-good policing. What does that mean and how does greater accountability lead to a better system of policing? You know, most police do not uh, abuse people. They don't abuse their authority uh, and they don't go around killing unarmed people. Qualified immunity does not apply to those cops at all. The only cops that qualified immunity applies to are cops who break the law. Uh, and, you know, in order to have good policing, I mean, any, any police person will tell you that we need to have the trust of the community. What we've been telling police officers is that it's a two-way street. You can't have the trust of the community unless you're willing to be held accountable. And right now they're not. And you know, the community doesn't trust them. I mean, it, it's really interesting, you know, for me as a white person uh, being brought up and my mom telling me the policeman is your friend. If you're ever in trouble, go up to the policeman. It's not the kind of conversation that black moms have with their kids. They're, they're saying that, you know, if you ever run into a policeman, you make sure you do exactly what he says. You know, that we... You know, you you will be stopped by a policeman. One of the most transforming moments of my life, epiphanies, we call them in the religious world, was when I was working, uh, trying to save money for college in high school. And uh, it was in Detroit. And uh, I was working uh, this janitorial job and liked to move around the heavy desks. And my buddy, this kid I met named Butch, he liked to do that too. So we became pals moving the stuff around and, and I'm old enough to be remember when we had elevator operators, <laughs> and when the old guys were on vacation or sick, they put me and Butch in the elevator up in the elevators, and then on breaks because you had to have a break when you're riding up and down the elevator. On my breaks, he'd come in and ride with me, and we talk. And, uh, and his, his breaks, we would ride back and forth up and down the elevator. Took me home to meet his mother, and what you just said is exactly what I heard from Butch's mother, who wasn't political or militant. She was just a ordinary mom like my mom who loved her kids. And she said, so I tell my kids, uh, if you're lost and can't find your way home and see a policeman duck under a stairwell or hide behind a building, wait till he passes and then find your way home. And when she said that, my mom's words to her five kids echoed in my head. If you're ever lost, can't find your way home, look for a policeman, like you just said. The policeman is your friend. He'll take you by the hand and bring you home. So I realized that Bush and I, two young men born in Detroit, but black and white, and literally grew up in different countries in the same city, which is what we don't understand often when we're white people. We don't know, you know, as you might know, I've been a little league baseball coach a long time and every black player I ever coached had their mom or dad say what you just said, how to behave in the presence to, to their their sons or daughters, how to behave in the presence of a police officer, what to do and not do, your eye contact, your hands. And and none of my white players ever had their white parents, even liberal white parents in Washington, D.C., 
ever ever have that talk, the talk with their kids. In fact, often don't even know what's going on. And so this is about relationships and who we know and who we're close to and who we trust and who we talk about our lives with and our hopes and fears for our kids. And this is really at the core of this. This isn't just some political policy issue. You use some really powerful words here. You said warriors, contrast the guardians. Then you said trust, <laughs> uh, relationship based on trust. And then the word accountability. Accountability, all we're saying is policing. Police officers have to be accountable. And don't we all want that really for our kids and other people's kids? So in your opinion, what is the best way to hold police officers accountable? <laughs> and what are the most practical ways to do that. I think the best thing to do is to overturn qualified immunity. And, you know, there's an opportunity to do it right now. Uh, you know, this law has been passed by the House. It's now in the Senate. The senators are currently negotiating the wording of it. Uh, the stumbling block is qualified immunity. And this is the time when your voice counts. This is the time when it really will be powerful to contact your senator. Uh, it's easy to do. You call the Capitol switchboard, you tell them where you live, and they hook you up with your senator's office. And all you have to say is, I want you to overturn qualified immunity. Um, so that's at the federal level and at the, and, and at the state level. Uh, you know, you can do it as well. There's, there's different efforts going on in different states. Uh, there is uh, a website you can visit, uh, holdcopsaccountable.org. Uh, you can put in your email address. We'll let you know. Holdcopsaccountable.org. And, um, you know, you can enter your email address and we'll let you know when your voice counts, who to contact. We make it easy. Hold copsaccountable.org. Now let's go to this bill. This So everyone knows there's this political debate and dialogue going on about the George Floyd Justice and Policing Act. It's ongoing, on, ongoing every day. And we continue to wait and see whether a bipartisan agreement will be possible. And one of the big issues, you call it, I think rightly, the stumbling block being debated is, is qualified immunity. And, and here's the thing they're debating. Whether that should be applied to the behavior of individual police officers and or just police departments, individual officers or police departments. What is your view on what's most important here and why? Well, I, there, there's two issues. One is that the cop who broke the law needs to be held accountable. That person needs to pay a price. Uh, we, we need to demonstrate to other cops that if you break the law, there's consequences. The other aspect is that the victim needs some form of justice. You know, uh, in our society, you know, somebody gets physically harmed or killed, the only way we know the only way we have to dispense justice is to give that person money some some compensation for the damage that they've uh you know that's been done to them so you know this this so-called compromise whereby 
Well, the cop would not be held accountable, but the victim would have a chance to get compensation is kind of a halfway thing. Uh, you know, you, the victim gets compensation and some sense of justice. I mean, the, the police department or the municipality ends up being found guilty that they did do something wrong and they have to pay the price. But in terms of getting bad cops off the force, which is really the most important thing to do, uh, I don't think it, it goes, it, I don't think it really accomplishes that. So we need both uh, collective and individual responsibility here. Yeah. I, I mean, that, that's kind of the norm in most any other situation. You know, a person will normally sue the person who uh, abused them or violated the law and the employer. Do you think this issue is going to be resolved and how can we make sure it is? Well, whether it's going to be resolved is something that's right now unknown. And the way we can make sure that it is, is to make our voices heard by the legislators, uh, to make your voice heard in the, you know, the letters to the editor section of your whatever, uh, to, to just make a lot of noise about it, but really right now to let your senators know how you feel. Um, you know, another thing that uh, we're doing as part of this campaign is that there's a, there's a podcast called Unaccountable. Uh, the host is Aloe Black, uh, along with me, the co-host. Uh, you know, we've had some, some pretty well-known uh, guests. Uh, Nina Turner has been on. Uh, we've had some former police officers on. Um, and uh, it, it, it does a great job of telling the stories of, of people that have suffered uh, under the system. And uh, it's, it's kind of, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's eye-opening. Let me just leave it at that. How do people find the podcast? Podcast. It, the name is Unaccountable. It is available wherever you find your podcasts on all the different platforms. And the website again, tell us what that is. Holdcopsaccountable.org. Now, at the end of your book, you write this, he who is silent consents. It's a very powerful thing to say. He who is silent consents, even if they disagree with it or don't think it's, or even get mad about it. He who, who is silent consents. Why is it important for white people in particular, like you, like me? to get involved in this issue. Well, thank you for picking up on that, uh, that phrase that I put back there. Uh, it's a very meaningful phrase for me. There, you know, I've, I've, I've done interviews on this book with a bunch of other people. You're the only one who's pointed that one out, and I really appreciate it, Jim, uh, because I, I believe it so strongly. Um, you know, there's another quote from Nelson Mandela, who says that uh, you cannot be neutral in situations of oppression. If an elephant is standing on the tail of a mouse and you claim that you are neutral, 
the mouse will not much appreciate your neutrality. So, uh, you know, if we, another one of the things that kind of drives me a little crazy about this issue is that, you know, in the, in the political sphere, the people that are leading the charge are black. I feel like this isn't really a black issue. This is a white issue. Yes, it's black people that are bearing the brunt of this problem, but white people in our country are the majority and are the people who hold the power. Uh, so it is us white people who are employing these policemen. That's how it works. Uh, we, and we are paying for them. And uh, so the people that we arm and hire to protect and serve are killing unarmed black people before our very eyes and we're letting them get away with it. If we are silent, we're just, we're just allowing it to continue. Well, but, but the point you're making, though, is, is so important. Black pastors uh, often tell me how much they talk to police officers, sheriffs in their towns, in their communities, uh, about this kind of behavior and about, you know, uh, their deep concerns for their own kids, their, you know, the, the, the youth group in their church, the, the kids on the streets, the kids are often uh, the victims of this police violence. And they said to me, you know how much difference it would make if there were white pastors in the room with us, <laughs> if there was some white evangelical mega pastors in the room, if there were pastors from multiracial churches, if there were rabbis and imams in the room, if we were all saying to the sheriffs, uh, we want to help, we want to help you gain trust in our communities, but also to say, we are watching you. We are watching you. And black pastors have told me having white pastors alongside them in those meetings would literally save countless black lives. And so how we speak and raise our voices together in the way you're doing so is just such a powerful thing. People need to hear from all of us. And you say that this is not a black issue. This is a this is an issue of uh, of citizenship. It's an issue of of uh, people that are being paid to serve and protect, to be guardians. Uh, it's an I issue of whether we're, 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 we're above the law, as your book title says so powerfully, or, or we're, we're under the law, all of us, whether the law is being carried out fairly and honestly. In this book, which you all who are listening have to read, I love the end of the foreword here, uh, Ben. You have Michael Render, uh, nicknamed Killer Mike. <laughs> He's, here's how he ends his forward to begin your book. Sometimes the fight against evil feels heavy and hopeless. I know that feeling. You do too, Ben. Sometimes the fight against evil feels heavy and hopeless, but it's not hopeless. Plot, plan, strategize, organize, and mobilize. You start by yourself. You plot out what you want to see in the world. You may be do a little plan, 
planning by yourself, but then you begin to strategize with the others around you, in your building, on your street, in your office, and then you organize with others. And then finally you mobilize together. In that struggle, we discover solidarity with other human beings. And that is something that no evil can take from us. This book, he says, in your hands, this book in your hands is an effort to mobilize together. It's not as lonely when you think you understand. It's not as lonely when you understand you ain't alone. You ain't alone. Michael Bender, Michael, let me just say it again. It's not as lonely when you understand you ain't alone. Michael Render, Killer Mike. What a great way to end the forward and introduce people to, to this book because that's what you've done all your life. You feel something. Uh, you, know, you and Jerry feel outraged and, and you, you don't just say I'm against that or I'm angry and then go home and binge watch TV. You organize. You, you take the people around you and you say, we can do something. Here's what we can do. Here's something that is the stumbling block to keeping people safe. And you've done a book and a campaign in your organizing. Uh, and that's what you always do. And that's why I have admired you so much all these years. I remember we had a conversation last fall when we were doing a lot of us uh, voter protection. We had poll chaplains in many of these key states and precincts where there was real fear of voter suppression and voter intimidation. We had clergy. There were pastors, priests, rabbis who were at the polling place to protect voters. And I called you and said, hey, these voters in these long lines, uh, you think we can give them some free ice cream? <laughs> and you said, absolutely. And so you got your, uh, it may be owned by somebody else, but they still sometimes listen to you over there. And, and we had ice cream, Ben and Jerry's ice cream for people who were waiting in line to vote for long periods of time. So you've always taken what you have, my brother, and acted and done something with it. And that's why it's an example to all of us here. In our own ways, as your this forward of your book points out, uh, we can do this. And I admire you for always figuring out a way to get something done. Well, it's great to be talking with you, Jim. It's great to be working with you. It's It's been wonderful, uh, you know, working together o- over the years. And, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, there'll, there'll probably always be injustice. But I think that it's in working to end injustice that we find our spirit, our soul, and our joy. Indeed. We find our spirit, our soul, and our joy. And I love walking into a Ben and Jerry's ice cream and saying, hey, you know what? I know Ben. (laughs) 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 It always amazes you. Really? Really? I said, like he's just sometimes I walk into one of our stores, I say, Hi, I'm Ben. They say, Oh, yeah, right. You and everybody else. Yeah, right. <laughs> well, Ben, thank you for joining us and always doing what you do. To hear more from Ben Cohen, follow him on Twitter at Yo Ben Cohen, Y O Ben Cohen, and the campaign at Campaign to End QI. Qualified immunity. Campaign to end QI qualified immunity. For more Soul of a Nation updates, don't forget to subscribe, rate and review, and follow me if you'd like on Twitter at Jim Wallace. Blessings on all of you for the soul of a nation.